UX Podcast Episode 97. Welcome. I'm James Ward Lawson. <laughs> and I'm Pat Axbob. <laughs> and this is UX Podcast, coming to you every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden, and attempting to balance business, technology, and users just for you, dear mm. listener. We are doing a good job, aren't we? Balancing those three elements of the user experience, I think. You reckon? You're asking me. I, um, I hope so. I'll, I'll tell you what, if mm. you think that, why don't you go and fill our survey in? Oh, I, I should actually. <laughs> Uh, under lots of different pseudonyms. <laughs> <UX podca- laughs> see if you can pick them out. Uxpodcast.com yeah. slash survey. Mm. And that's the last time I'm going to mention that then, because we're actually closing the survey yeah. after um, this show. Yes. We would like to mention as well, before we get into today's subject, um, that there are some st- still some tickets left for UXLX in Lisbon. Okay, cool. Portugal. Um, yeah, a few standard tickets left. Yeah. And Last um, tickets on s- now on sale is what it says yeah, on the website. It's in the beginning of June um, mm. in Portugal, and it's excellent. And we've been there um, a number of times, and we're going to be there, and we will be recording interviews on site. Yes. So you can come and even say hello to us. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. UX-LX.com. You can look at that. But now, time for an interview. We'll be, we'll be talking to uh, Joe Leach, uh, who... Has just gone freelance. He's written a book about uh, psychology for web designers, and uh, it's more of a pocket guide. It was actually published in uh, 2013, uh, and I said the title wrong. It's psychology and web design, and it's about how how understanding psychology can make you a better designer. And what we're one thing we're going to touch upon with with Joe um, is he's got a thing in his bonnet at the moment, a bee in his bonnet about bullshit science mm. um, that's used in the development of digital services and websites. Exactly. So we're going to find out a little bit more about um, that. Is interesting psychology. We uh, a lot of people, a lot of designers are actually talking about psychology now. We are using it to mm. to uh, make people do it, do stuff that maybe they didn't want to do at first. Mm. And so there's an ethical side there as well. Yeah, ethics. Here we go. Mm. Debunking myths. I think this will be. Let's go. Yep. Wow, great. Uh, so this is one of my favorite subjects, psychology. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, who you are, and how you came to write the book that you did. Okay, so um, my background starts, as always with any good psychologist, with my mother, Um she was um, it all begins (laughs) she was a psychologist when I was growing up she she was an educational Mm. psychologist Um, and my dad he's um, he's an architect so it's kind of a good union for for UX you've got the one hand the kind of human-centered design and the other hand the psychology so I kind of been surrounded yeah I've been surrounded by it from a really sort of early age Um, and so when it came to studying uh, at university the choices were social psychology which is what my mother studied or at that point I was feeling I think a bit rebellious so I ended up studying neuroscience which is kind of on the opposite scale which is more cognitive and slightly more dare I say it scientific than social psychology Um, and you actually talk about this in the book as well the conflict with your mother yeah yeah I do which is (laughs) 
yeah. sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, we have an argument in chapter two about the two types of psychology and which is best, you know, cognitive, um, kind of more scientific based on, you know, biological evidence, and then social psychology, which is this idea of psychology being based on, um, uh, you know, the, the society around us. And I think, you know, basically we're both right. I think both of them have equal, um, equal value. So, um, yeah. It was... it's, kind of like, it's kind of like peeling an onion, I think. Exactly right. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, they're, they're all layered there somehow. Yeah, exactly. And then so um, I did that and then um, I took a few years, you know, not knowing what to do because this internet thing hadn't really taken off by the time when I finished university. So I went back and I studied um, human computer interaction, like probably a lot of us in the industry uh, back in 2003. Um, and then from there, I haven't really looked back and I've been user experiencing for about what, almost 12 years now. Mm. cool oh and you asked me about the book as well didn't you so where where the book started from <laughs> yeah <laughs> um because i found myself using psychology a lot in what i did but it, it i could never find a book that really taught me about the basics of psychology there are plenty of books out there that listed top 500 psychology tips and tricks to use or psychology theories to use but no, nothing that really kind of explained what psychology was for ux and for designers and gave them a sort of much more of a grounded background in what psychology is rather than just sort of listing loads of things they could suddenly do in their designs psychology for designers that's what it's called that's it? my book yeah. yeah exactly right psychology for designers mm-hmm. and it wasn't much i actually realized because i asked i asked james earlier do we have the book and i realized i have the book because i i bought it before you actually contacted us oh that's uh, good and, to read, know. and i had read it i speak at conferences and one of the questions i ask i yeah. ask people to put their hands yeah. in the air is, have you bought the book yeah. And like a few hands go up and they ask the question, have you read the book? And less hands go up because it's only, <laughs> yeah. it's only like three pounds or sort of, you know, four and a half euros. So it's yeah. not, not expensive. It's a small book. But a lot of people go, yeah, I'll just it. buy it. And, yeah. and people just buy it and never read the damn yeah. thing. Well, there, there was, there, see, they were straight into kind of like the, the yeah. conversion funnel. And, and surely there's some exactly. kind of like psychologi- psychological tricks you could use there to try and increase the, the, <clears throat> the percentage of people who mm. not only buy the book, but then go on to read it. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure the best way to do it. I think a lot of us have <laughs> had this kind of Kindle guilt. I don't know if you had the same thing or an e-book guilt where yeah. it's so easy to buy books and they just sort of build up on your Kindle and you never read them. And you feel a, Every time I sort of finish a book, I look at all my own read books and I just feel a bit guilty that I've not managed to read all these amazing books that are out there. So yeah, maybe there's something I can do. Regular mm. listeners to this show will know that um, I'm, I'm a big fan of buying books. I buy lots of books and I'm absolutely hopeless at reading them. I, um, I read a very, very small percentage of the books I read. Terrible yeah. at it. Per is much better. He, he reads. Oh, that's good to hear. I do read. But I, yeah. I, 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 often real read books, like, real I often read like five books at the same time. So I like choose, choose one in the evening. I'm going to continue with this one. So yeah, that's, that's a good fun. idea. That's a good that's idea. If anyone writes a book, they should always um, write the interesting things in the first three chapters. Because I think I've read the first three chapters <laughs> yeah. of every book I own. Yeah, absolutely right. I think mine, yeah, my, my, mine peaks around chapter three anyway. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, should I? No, no. You're supposed to say things like that. <laughs> no, but it, it, I mean, it's only it's only about eight thousand words. So actually, you can whiz through mine in about two hours and get all the basics yeah. to, to psychology in one go there. So, mm. I know recently, um, I think at the, at the end of last year, you did a little series of blog posts um, um, around um, bullshit science, ah. um, where you 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 vented your, yourself a little bit about some of the um, psycholo- psychological crutches that um, the branch use, uh, the industry uses um, to try and justify certain things. Um, 
which um which is interesting yeah. I mean, this is this is something we, we 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 have to deal with constantly that there's um everyone's everyone's searching for that that magic bullet that that little thing that they can use as a rule um in all the work they do um so it's very easy to to have things such as the the seven plus two rule which um yeah you know goes back exactly. to the i mean remember that from the very early days of doing web stuff that was that was touted around some like it was gospel that it was the the holy rule of navigation information architecture um but we're oh we're surrounded by this we feel completely we feel reassured by them there's there's a lot of it out there and and it, it, the reason i started them was but i just kept seeing so many awful presentations with maslow's hierarchy of need in it and and mm. Part of it, I, was, I knew that Maslow's hierarchy of need was, was, was basically invented and made up by this kind of fairly rich white guy who sort of decided that, you know, the, that everybody therefore should be judged in terms of quite rich, well-off American white guys in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the, their needs, where this sort of a level of self-actualization at the top of it was this holy grail or the thing that every, everybody needed. And in reality... For example, Maslow's hierarchy of mean isn't based on any science and actually only really makes sense to a small percentage of the world. So it was a real frustration that this stuff kind of kept coming out as being truth or was being misinterpreted that made me write those posts. Um, And and the worst offender I I found was the um, uh, was the left brain, right brain um, idea where, you know, we're either left brained or we're right brained or, you know, dominated on one and dominated on another um, in fact, I was at a conference only yesterday and somebody was going on about, are you, know, are you left-brained and right-brained? And again, it's a complete myth. There's this, this sort of dominant uh, cortex or dominant side of the brain doesn't exist. We're neither one or the other. That's the amazing thing about the human brain is we're so many complicated things together. You can't just mm. say that you're this or you're that. And there's, I've got, so I got, I, yeah, the, the, the posts were really built on, a, uh, on my frustrations just hearing this junk and this bullshit just get churned out as if it was truth <laughs> well it, it, it seems like we've i think i've been to conferences i've heard both those examples i mean maslow's hierarchy of needs i mean that was i studied communication science that was part of the textbooks that i was reading as part of my courses which was interesting in itself well and, and, it's and a, i mean yeah completely yeah. and what's a real shame about this is that i think we're not and what I was taught on my, on, on my academic career was to question everything, was to question mm. all of the theories, to question all of the psychology. And again, this is what I do in my book, is I say, don't take this stuff as being completely true. Just because somebody's written it in an academic paper or even just written mm. it in a blog doesn't mean it's the truth. And that's chapter four is where I get into in my book about yeah. how to assess psychology to understand, well, is it actually valid? Is mm. this theory I'm looking at valid for the problem that I've got? And uh, it, it's a real frustration that, that, you know, academia teaches you this to be to critically look at all of, of science and to be very uh, criti- mm. you know, think objectively about everything you do. Mm. And actually, in reality, in our industry, sometimes we just just because somebody's written it on the blo- on a blog mm. post means that we believe it. Exactly. <laughs> or, or even in the research paper, a research paper always makes it sound like, yeah, so that's the truth. I mean, I've been <laughs> I've been uh, a bit into politics for over the past year in in Sweden, and everybody. The first question people ask as soon as you think about what what, what are we going to do with school, what are we going to do with yeah. different topics, and uh, okay, so what does the research say? And then somebody quotes a research paper. Oh, so that's what the research says. So then that's what we're going to do. And no matter if the research sucks or not, nobody has any clue as to how the research was performed or how many times they've been able to repeat the the study and, and get the same results and stuff like that. So that's what I love about, like, I think, yeah, so chapter four it is, 
Mm-hmm. Everybody should read chapter four, so don't stop at chapter yeah, three. Yeah, although it peaks at three, damn. four is really <laughs> damn, important. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really how to read an academic, academic paper, and it's not only people in UX who should read that. Everybody should read that. Yeah, absolutely, because again, like mm. you say, it was most mm. people just read the abstract and the conclusion of a, mm. a paper. They don't dig into yeah. the detail to say, is this valid? Because the, the big thing about a lot of psychology papers is the mm. majority of them, the subjects they use in psychology papers are... Uh, are people that are around them so typically most psychology um, papers are written with um, young people like participants who are sort of between 18 and 23 because they were written by universities so all the participants yeah. are like kind of at the, their prime in life or are very exp- inexperienced so a lot of the kind of the psychology that we've got is often based on the mind of a you know 18 to 24 year old very well educated middle class person because that's what academics universities are surrounded by is that's who they end up studying or using in their in in their papers it's crazy exactly and i think uh malcolm gladwell i think most of our listeners will know who it is author of uh, the tipping point and, and blink and david and goliath most recently he's, he's been getting a lot of heat recently because he's been quoting studies and those this validity of those studies can be really be questioned because it's as you're saying they've been performed at universities with a very limited number of participants as well <clears throat> it's, it's a huge it's a huge problem i think for psychology generally so it, it's good that you know stuff starting to change with things like apple's um you know the new research kit that's coming into the iphone is going to have a huge effect in terms of a lot of the studies that are going to be undertaken by academics because it gives them suddenly a much wider world of 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 participants that are very very easy to mm. access because that's the biggest challenge for most mm. academics is right. actually getting hold of willing participants and most of the time it's it's hungry students will take ten dollars you know to to sit and get electrocuted as part of their you know, of, a, of a psychology study you know mm. i mean this is also not not limited to the psychology side of things i mean interpreting results is is just the problem with that is is rife through all the work we do um i mean just take usability testing the amount of times i see things like um mm. heat, ma- heat maps oh, from eye tracking yeah. studies for example now having having done eye tracking research myself i know that i can produce a heat map that shows exactly what i want from whatever usability testing I've done, because you know you just make the pretty looking you know, heat map at the end of it, but you don't really have to say, well, you know, how many people is this? What kind of 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 of, of um, you know range of data have I used? Um, you know, how have I merged several people together? Have I um, you know merged several screens together? I mean, there's so many ways you can produce a, a heat map, and yet you can write a blog post about it and say. People have F-shaped um, viewing oh, patterns yeah. when looking at search results. Mm. There we go. It becomes gospel. It's truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I'm doing a series of conference talks this year, and what the talk is going to be designing with science. And a lot of it is around that. How do you construct an argument with, with, with data and with facts to help support your design work that you're doing? And you're right. A lot of it is about interpretation, and a lot certainly with eye tracking and with a lot of data. The interpretation of the data you've got can either prove your design is good or it's bad depending on how you often spin that particular uh, that particular fact so I don't think that's a mm. bad thing I think we just need to be very aware of that when we're doing it because it's really really easy to use science to prove everything that you do because you know mm. we as humans want to make sure we much rather prove something's true than something's false because that's a lot mm. more acceptable especially if it's our own design work we want to make mm. sure that our own design work is great and so therefore we can interpret the science in a way that proves our case is is true how do we, I mean, how do we sell this in a practical manner? Because, I mean, if we, 
if we ourselves are better at judging data sources and and um, validating inputs, um, how do we then communicate that onwards to the recipients of what we're delivering? Oh, well, the question is, do, should we? I mean, that's the question: is do we need to? Is I think well, the, that, that, that's yeah. that's one of the things I discuss in my talk. Is well, if it we need to because the, the problem we find is you know you. We as UXers are very, are very prone to this, where we'll suddenly, we'll stand up, we'll be presenting a bit of research back or a piece of design back, and we'll be like, blah, 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 and this is the theory of the blah, blah, blah. And, and you can just see mm. people's faces glazing over as we're talking. And they're like, just, just show me the pretty stuff. Show me what, how it's going to work and give me the confidence that it's either going to work. And that's basically what people are looking for, is that the confidence in our findings or our design work is you know, it's to the best of our abilities. And maybe that's the question we should be asking ourselves is how confidently can we assess whether our own research findings or design work is is fit mm. for purpose and questioning ourselves rather than necessarily having that argument in front of a wider group of people who may not actually be really bothered by it. Right. Yeah, I, I understand. I agree with that. But at the same time, I feel, feel a little bit uneasy about the, the whole thing of kind of us and them. It's like, well, you know, we've got to be really critical. We've got to understand what we're looking at. But them over there, no, we'll just we'll just keep the curtain shut and we won't let them know what's going on. So, so it kind of creates that. I don't know. There's something that makes me feel a little uneasy about that. Answer. I, I Even though I agree mean. with you, that's yeah. that is the probably oh, the, the logical answer. Well, that's like my financial advisors. I mean, I, I don't really care what they do with my money as long as it grows. Yeah, well, I think that's it. And it's, it's maybe who, who pairs right. So maybe who, who the team is. So if it's yeah. like, if it's, if it's the wider team, you know, there's back to this idea that, you know, UX isn't going to be around in, in 10 years as a job. It's not going to be around in 10 years. UX is just going to be what everybody does. You know, UX is, mm. a, is a particular role will live amongst the team. So there may be a researcher, but does, you know, there's not going to be somebody who just does UX. That'll be what everybody does. And, and I think maybe mm. that's the responsibility you're talking about, James, is that actually that the, mm. the team or the, the team itself should be aware of all of these um, the criticisms or the evidence that supports or doesn't support what we're talking about. But when it comes down to the manager or the, you know, the, the CEO who's got 15 minutes of time to say, just give him some feedback on how the work's going, mm. they, at that point, like, you know, to Per's point, they're, they're the, so we're, in the, we're there in that position. Just like, well, tell me, is it going to work? How confident are you? What have you done to do yeah. it? You know, and it's, it's, it really depends on the audience, I think, as to how we do that. But, you know, maybe this fact that UX is going gonna, is gonna to ultimately be done by everybody rather than specialists might affect that in the future. I think what you're saying there, how confident are we? Yeah. That's the question that people are not asking. And that reminds me as well about the conversation we had with um, Bart Schultz um, in, in October um, and how when he's working with clients, one of the things that they do is they, they just go for the whole um, full trust deal where they say, uh, well, you know, what's your goal? Uh, your goal is to do this, um, you know, get people to convert with this particular uh, result. Um, let us try some things and we'll make sure we increase it. Brilliant. Um, and then the, the customer doesn't need to know anything whatsoever. They just need to see at the end of the day that they're now converting X amount more than they were before they did their work. Um, and, and that's all that matters to um, you know, a certain level of management in organizations. Mm. More, more money's coming in or more goals have been achieved. And I think but it's, it's probably about that idea that any point during that process, somebody's going to ask you that question. How did you come up with that result? How confident are you in that result? And as long as you've got the answer there and then to justify it rather than going, uh, mm, uh, then that's the confidence they're going to get. Because everybody will ask you that two or three times in any of those sorts of situations where they effectively trust you. 
if you can answer the odd query, the odd curveball question they throw at you, which they inevitably will, any client that you're working for will ask you that. As long as you can comfortably argue that and say, this is what we've done and this is the, our thinking behind it and this is the research that we've done and prove that individual mm. point, like you say, they will then trust us on the other 99 points yeah. that we're working on for them. It's really, it is really healthy to work um, around hypotheses, mm. I think. Uh, for exactly that reason that you you've got your clear goals and then you create a hypothesis and you know do the scientific you know the scientific method you um you know you desire, you think of an answer of, of what can what what can we do to to test this hypothesis and then um see what the result is and that helps you build up the the the, the proof the data behind you to answer the question it does, when it comes it does but, it, but the, i guess the question the problem we have with hypothesis as well or hypotheses within business is business is the opposite to academia as academia you often you have to prove something's true whereas in business often mm. it's the opposite you, you generally have to prove something's false and actually that's a that's a different set of criteria you have to kind of get to to do it so within that kind of whole hypothesis argument actually the academic way of doing it is different from the business way of doing it and anytime you try and be very rigorous and academic with with proving or disproving hypotheses actually organizations just get a bit weirded out when you say actually we need to prove this is true rather than proving what we've, we're suggesting here is false they tend to get freaked I out see what a bit you by get, that yeah i see what you mean because i mean in most organizations they're already doing something yeah so like when you when you march in with your hypotheses um that you know oh, this will be this better i don't know um and that goes against what they're currently doing. I have been doing maybe for 10 years. This is the, the way that marketing's been working. Yeah. This is the way the website's been working. Working, And then you come in and say, well, no, that can't work. So yes, you've got to disprove their current practices um, in order to prove the other one. It's hmm. true. And cause, so part, cause, um, I don't know if I've mentioned you, I'm going freelance, which is very scary and very exciting in the next couple of weeks. Um, Nice. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's so. One of the things I'm sort of working towards is back to this idea that I mentioned, where UX I feel is going to be kind of much more embedded in a wider team than you know just in specialists. Part of what I'm going to be doing is is is, is coaching and mentoring UX team or digital teams to kind of do that stuff more. So to your point, James, it's that I think that's that's the sort of bit that a lot of certainly within UX people are kind of missing is that ability to to question and to, to do that kind of ability and to have that kind of depth of feeling and understanding about the work that they're doing rather than the practicalities of running research or the practicalities mm. of doing wireframes. It's actually back to this idea is, are we doing the right thing? Are we using the right, are we asking ourselves the right questions about our process and our design and everything like that? Rather than, you know, is this button blue going to be better than this button is green? Which is kind of, I think, where our... Uh, our practice is moving towards much more is away from this idea of blue versus green buttons to much more of a holistic kind of business led world where we're effectively helping our customers or our clients or however to do better work rather than to produce mm. button or produce wealth wireframes or designs that convert mm. better so i think there's also a psychology comes in again to make you um, the psychology of organizational change yeah to to help you come in there and um and make change happen um, mm. with ux which i think and ux is such a great force for that because what ux is good at is is being very objective about what's going on so again evidence for change is based around what users are saying what your customers are saying to you mr business rather than me as a professional consultant saying you should do this kind of thing to change mm. your business so it's kind of a nice nicer way of business change is doing it to make businesses focus more around organizational change and user focusing on users rather than you know changing one system and process for another one at the same time i mean in ux it seems like 
everyone is so into psychology now, whether we call it gamification or behavioral economics or, or consumer psychology, we're looking for stuff that can let us design, maybe without even talking to users. We're looking for these bite-sized nuggets of psychology truths that will allow us to just add those things. Like we're looking for the speakeasy effect or the center stage yeah. effect. And we're using that to design and that works because it's a proven psychological fact. And that's how people are. And just uh, like you said before, the, most of these theories are just theories still and have like been proven in one study maybe 20 years back. And, and we're using them now to design. And we feel confident, or many people that I talk to feel confident using these. So in a discussion or presenting it to a client, they would say, we're using this psychological uh, pr well, study or proof or whatever to actually design. And that's why we think it will work rather than actually going out and doing the research yourself. Which I think, you know, I think it's good to do both of those things, you know, to do the psychology and then use the research to support that psychology. But I think, again, in the book, in chapter three or four, I think, four, I, three, I talk about this idea of predictive versus descriptive theories. So as you're absolutely right, Per, you said there that actually uh, within psychology, the best kinds of studies are the ones where they will give a demonstrable end result. So if you do, if you do, thing x then thing y will happen whereas in reality mm. that, that's what we call prescriptive theory so they're very good at prescribing what human behavior is going to be whereas the, in reality mm. like about 90 percent of psychology is the opposite it's descriptive theory so it's saying things like us humans like to live near water we, we asked 100 people and they all said they like to live near water and we're like well no shit everybody knows that people like to live near water but it doesn't help you use that in any way that's just describes what's going on the best kind of psychology is the sort of um you know uh, again i talk in the book about you know how, how do you decide on the perfect number of elements to have in your navigation how do you choose a psychology that will tell you that i go into a number of studies and actually that's just that's prescriptive psychology which prescribes if you do something like you know if you have seven uh, or between four and nine options within a in a navigation manual the, the fewer navigation items you have the easier it is for people to make a choice the more people are going to be able to do what you want that's prescriptive psychology theory and that stuff's gold but it's it's such a small amount of psychology is prescriptive and such a large amount is descriptive and the descriptive stuff's the the junk that they end up printing in newspapers that's fairly obvious to us all <laughs> and also the, the the prescriptive psychology um in a lot of situations it it's valid and works when it's in a confined yeah. um, set of criteria. It's the same thing as I used to annoy the hell out of me over economics. I studied economics um, at university um, a couple of decades ago now, um, and and I I got into lodge got into trouble quite often because I used to object to the whole perfect market um, you know situations, perfect information, and all this kind of you know list. We had like seven um, conditions that you always yeah. had to basically state at the side of whatever you were doing anything, and if any of these wasn't true, then the theory didn't work. I can say, well, you know, it never ever works. And no. that's the same kind of thing with some of the psychologist stuff. It works in a certain situation, but as soon as you put it into a real life situation, then it gets You can't be sure. Right exactly. And it's the, same with, it's the same with usability testing at the same time. You know, user research in a lab-based environment or even with a human being sat opposite you isn't going to work. So you guys are familiar with the Hawthorne effect, um, which is this... Um, this idea is this, this sort of time and motion study that was undertaken in this, uh, this U.S. factory uh, in, the, in the late 1920s. And they were studying how efficient people were at their job, how many widgets they could make um, based on the lighting um, of, the, mm. uh, of the factory. And so they had these guys there, 
with clipboards watching people and they were like right 100 percent lighting efficiency is you know they're producing 100 units an hour 80 percent lighting they're producing 100 units an hour 60 percent lighting oh they're still producing 100 units an hour 10 percent lighting they're still producing 100 units an hour and it turns out that the lighting wasn't having an effect the fact that people were still producing 100 items was because there were five scientists with white coats and clipboards stood behind them watching them while they were making these widgets and that's the Hawthorne effect which is this idea that actually the very fact that you as a researcher are asking a user participant a question or talking to them about something uh, related to you know interface you're testing with them is gonna is going to have an effect on their the outcome of that test um so it's, again, we can't be 100% sure our psychology is going to work, but at the same time, we can't be 100% sure our research is going to work either. That's what I don't like about usability testing is that you're, you affect so much just by yeah. the, the context of being in a room that you may not be in, or sometimes people are forced to use computers that they don't usually use. And there are so many factors that are oh, not completely. like they are, usually are when they're using it uh, normally in a normal situation. Or, or, or the worst of the worst, the, two, the two-way mirror. Oh, the two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. That's that's that. If there's one thing that's going to freak people out and use the research, it's the two-way mirror. That and having nothing on underneath your white coat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it but it makes me uh, makes me think about you say quite a lot. Um, that um, you know you have multiple data points. So yeah. if you're doing usability testing, then make sure you do um, analysis of Google Analytics or whatever uh, tool you're using, um, or maybe do um, you know, online testing or you know, c- combine things so that you get a, um, a mix and can make um, better judgments from the multiple data points. Because one by itself is going to probably lead you astray. That's very exactly. Advice. You don't have the results after one one set of research. Well, what, doing one study, you actually need to reproduce those results. The first study gives you a theory, but then we need to reproduce those results to actually come to a conclusion about yeah, this is probably what's happening. But then we hit the world of that gets becomes quite expensive. Then, so you're right. If you can, if you're doing multiple rounds of research. You know, back to that. You know, oh, told Jacob Nielsen study or that piece of advice which again now proven to be inaccurate is where you know you can just test with five people and it'll be great and you'll get you know all of these usability errors there right there and then it's sort of you know we're always looking for a kind of quick fix and actually unfortunately it's not always that easy i was always wondering where that truth came from you get 80 percent of your findings from five people (laughs) yeah that's what he says well exactly that's exactly right and it's just like yeah no, I actually always wondered. I always wondered about how he gets to hundred percent because, because he might exactly because I mean it's, it might be true that they find most of the usability issues after five mm. tests, but you can only qualify that as eighty percent if you actually always get to hundred percent eventually. Yeah. So you would need unlimited mm. budget to actually prove whether that figure was true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Brilliant. That actually, actually makes you you realize how nonsensical that statement yeah, is. Completely. Yep. But it's but it makes it easier to sell um, usability mm. sessions like one yeah. day five or six participants. Mm. And, yes. and now you can back it up with mm. you know the usability guru himself saying that that's enough. Mm. And I think that's the one thing. You know, that's one of the great things that actually good old Jacob's given us over the years is the fact that he he more than anybody else has done great stuff to promote our industry. You know that he's done that. He's helped us. You know even if it's not been particularly what's the right word, uh, done in the, the best way. He's, he's actually done some fantastic stuff for the industry to sort of, you know, bang the drum and get people seeing the value in what we do. So, yeah, well done to him for doing that. It's just a shame that some of, when you scratch scratch beneath the surface, it sort of all tends to fall apart mm. a little bit. So in your book, you also talk a bit about uh, 
the things that I know we talked to, to Natalie Nahai about before, uh, the ethics of ah, all this. Yeah. Uh, so you, were, mm. you, you might use some of these tools or the, the competence from psychology to coerce and influence people into doing something they may not want to do. So how do you approach that? Because it seems like a lot of conversion rate optimization scientists, whatever, use this to sell more. And that's what they essentially want to do. Yeah. Do you know, I've, I've had this debate with Natalie as well, actually. We, um, uh, if, you like, if you like listening to she interviewed me on her podcast and we had this big debate. And I actually, I actually <laughs> called her out on it. And I said to her, look, are you sure you're, this is ethical? Um, anyway, but uh, yeah. So, yeah where, does, where does persuasion stop and just downright trickery <laughs> start? Well, but, but persuasion in itself is, is, a bad, is, a, is a bad word. I mean, the way I see it is if, if, if you're selling people stuff they don't want, you're doing something wrong. If you're trying to sell some a product that's crappy, like, you know, uh, what, what can that be? Like travel insurance if you're Ryanair, which is the famous example, or payment protection insurance in the UK, where, you know, there's been a whole big scandal about how that was missold. If you're trying to do something like that or trying to pull the wool over somebody's eye or make them buy something they're not, or they're not intending to buy, then that's ethically wrong. If you're encouraging them to buy through you as an organization versus somebody else's organization and you're being honest about it, then, then that's fair enough. It's where it, mm. when it just goes beyond that line of effectively tricking people into doing stuff or you know, making people sign up to something they don't, they're not quite sure what they're doing, then ethically that's wrong, definitely. Mm. Um, in fact, there's a study that was produced, written only today, um, I just came across it today, um, a guy, called, a guy called David Travers, who, who tweets his uh, user vision, he's great at providing loads of UX links. He, he posted a, a great uh, article, um, an academic article about this, about where, where, when, does, when is persuasion unethical and when's it not? And it's, it's, it's really, I'm really interested to know that, it's, I'm glad as an industry we're sort of building a, um, uh, we're starting to listen to this fact as well, because one of the things I've got in my book is uh, I, I have my own personal code of conduct where, I say these are the things that I'm prepared to do and these are the things that I'm not prepared to do. You know, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to cheat and I'm not going to sell somebody something they don't want. As far as I'm concerned with this stuff, as long as you're, you feel ethically comfortable in doing it, then do it. If you don't or you're not sure, then don't bloody do it. You're probably doing something wrong if you feel it's a bit wrong. I remember back in the days when I, when I first got into user experience, one of my first jobs was for a big high street bank in the UK and I had to design their credit card and loan application forms and they told me from day one they said we make no money out of the credit cards or the loans themselves we make all our money out of the payment protection insurance we sell alongside it we want you to sell us sell more of this insurance and as a user experience uh. guy I, there's so many things i could have done you know because again when you're filling out an insurance form you know if the person filling out the insurance form has got kids or is married or has got a job and you can start to use that data to really scare people and mm. I found myself in meetings going, well, that's a great idea. But you know what? I'm not going to say it here because they'll do it. And it's ethically wrong. And I'm really glad that I didn't because, again, it turns out that, you know, of all the banks that got sued for payment protection insurance, the one I worked for didn't. So it's funny because I I was uh, listening back to a a person I talked to before uh, on a podcast about search engine optimization and the ethics because there's black hat and white hat search SEO. I mean, there's definitely that. And you have these link farms that the black hats use. And now more and more you're starting to realize there's black hat UX and white hat UX as well, that there is some some stuff that is really ethically wrong in UX as well. Oh, completely. And do, and do you know what as well is that with the black hat 
SEO, a lot of that's come back to bite them on the arse, you know, all of that stuff where before they were, you know, spamming all of those forums and doing that sort of stuff. Now, now Google punishes companies for doing that. Actually, UX is the same way. You know, somebody at some point is going to realize what you're doing and either sue you or um, sue you, basically sue you, or, you know, Google's going to knock you out of the search engine listings. Wow. So if people want to talk to you more about this, how can they reach you? I think you're Mr. Joe on Twitter. I'm Mr. Joe on Twitter. Yeah. I'm mrjoe.uk uh, is my website. There's loads of stuff on there. So all of the stuff I've talked about, links to my book, links to all of those studies that, I, uh, that I've talked about as well. Um, and I also, every week, I publish like a list of interesting links that week. So you can sign up for that on my website as well. So every week I send you an email with all the most interesting stuff from UX and psychology and that kind of stuff. But yeah, basically everything's at mrjoe.uk. We can tell you're becoming a freelancer now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We'll just edit out the adverts. <laughs> There'll be nothing left. <laughs> well, so, thanks so much for talking uh, to us today. It's, no, thank you. Uh, it's been excellent, fun. fun. Thank you very much. What is it with this whole thing with psychologists, um, psychologist parents having psychologist kids? It is weird, isn't it? Because like we had, when we had Bart Schultz on um, in the autumn. Yes, his whole family. I mean, every single person he's ever touched <laughs> yeah. is a psychologist, I think. His mum and dad and dog or something are a psychologist. Right. Um, there's, something, there's something in the water. And there's something bizarre about it as well, because we're trying to understand our brains using our brain. Can it even be done? No. <laughs> Let's just give up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we realize that stuff like this, our insights about how people work, it really can't replace solid user research. And uh, Joe was agreeing with that as well. But it can give you a head start into thinking about what we could try out. So it's more of, this is the theory, let's try it out. Mm. But you still have to test it. You can't just go around saying to your clients, this is what works for everyone. No. It helps you, it helps you write the, the screenplay yes. to your production mm. that we're going to put on. Mm. But you need to try it out in front of an audience. Yes. Or you're never going to know whether it's um, funny or successful or a good, <laughs> exactly. a good show. Yeah. So no, but I, I also, I, I, the whole thing... W- with ethics it's like what um when are we when are we encouraging um users to do something that they want to do and when are we pushing them mm. and and some of the some of the things that we've, we've discussed and even discussed in earlier podcasts with like um oh well, this whole lunch bunch there, roger dooley and Na- uh, natalie um uh, Nahai and, and so the bart shoots yeah and bart shoots yeah. um that you know we're <laughs> the good the good psychological um or persuasion techniques that you um, deploy good i'm saying good now <laughs> um <laughs> they they're unnoticeable mm. they're they're subconscious because they're talking to a bit of your brain that isn't kind of in control mm. of things mm, consciously mm. so you're not going to be aware that you've been pushed mm. and joe's response was really if it feels bad it probably is bad Mm. And I, I totally agree with that, but there, it feels like there are so many bad people out there. <laughs> so there's so. a positive look on it all. <laughs> <laughs> We're surrounded by bad people. Yeah. So, so it, it really, we should, we should be called. Wasn't there like, like a site calling out bad uh, design? Yeah. They say, well, um, uh, yeah, um, dark patterns. Dark um, patterns. Yeah. yeah right. Um, there's a, there's a few collections of those kind of things mm. out there. But uh, but no, we also mentioned in the in the chat with Joe about um, organisations. You as a UXer can have that gut feeling that something's going to be wrong, Mm. but you might be getting an awful lot of pressure from your organisation to implement something 
you know, as, as a profit, maybe as a profit-driven or at least goal-driven organization, mm. that there's there's a lot of push there, for, you know, from that side of things mm. to deliver something. He gave the example of the um, um, the bank um, insurance. Yeah, uh, it was insurance, wasn't it? Um, where they they made money on the extra insurance, mm. and they, you know, the ethics on the bank side was dubious. Right, but they got caught out well in the end. Yeah, so it um, actually paid off mm. to be a good UXer there. Yeah. Mm. I, I I love talking psychology in relation to what we do. I think it also helps you do usability testing better and yeah. interviews better mm. because you're you understand more what to look for. I mean, just UX generally. I mean, you're 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 helping understand the triggers. And some of the stuff isn't new, but now you're com- more confident employing them mm. and more confident explaining them to your clients. Maybe. Mm. Well, be careful with the bullshit science that you use to describe it all. Yes. And that's yourself. also, and that's a big part of his book is actually calling out the bullshit science. Mm. That there are so many research papers out there, but research does not mean truth. Uh, research means theory, basically, and this is what this research showed. But something else could probably show something else entirely. Yeah. So you can um, grab Joe's book for not very much money at all from his website, and the exactly. link to that in the um, in the show notes. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of UX Podcast. You can find um, show notes and more about the show on uxpodcast.com. That's uxpodcast, all one word, dot com. And we are in pretty much, we'll put you everywhere is UX Podcast, one word. Um, Instagram, Stitcher, mm. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. You should fade, they should fade me out now yes, as I'm just I'll listing. <laughs> exactly. So what, the one thing to do this time is... Uh, we've just started working with our Instagram account, so just follow us on Instagram. That'll be fun. Uh, James will be posting every episode there as well when they're released. <laughs> he just added so many more channels. things to my to-do list. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, but of course, remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side. <laughs>